Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, as you might have guessed, we'll be discussing the latest in the coronavirus crisis, notably the UK's decision to continue its nationwide lockdown for another three weeks. We'll be looking at how and when we're going to be exiting these stringent social distancing measures and if the Johnson government has an exit strategy. We'll be comparing how the UK is doing to its European neighbours who are already looking to be exiting lockdown. Plus, we'll also be looking at the developing issues within care homes in the UK, how the government is coping without Boris Johnson at the top and once again looking at the travails over testing. I'm delighted to be joined remotely, of course, by our columnist Robert Shrimsley, political correspondent Laura Hughes and Europe editor Ben Hall. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Thank you for sticking with us throughout the corona crisis. We hope the quality is listenable. We're also conducting a little survey to see what you do and don't like about the Politics Podcast. So send any thoughts you have, positive or negative, to ft.com forward slash politics survey. This week marked the third week of the UK's lockdown. That means citizens across the country are not able to leave their houses except to go shopping, do essential key working tasks or to do exercise once a day. These were introduced three weeks ago by Boris Johnson to try and curtail the transfer of the coronavirus disease between household and household. The measures were initially put in place for three weeks and everybody was expecting them to be renewed for another three weeks. That's exactly what happened on Thursday when Dominic Raab told the nation that we were winning the fight against coronavirus but were not yet at the point at which life could start to go back to normal. So Robert Shrimsley, to begin, the general view across the whole of government for ministers and civil servants has been that the lockdown would have to continue. That's exactly what happened. So what did you make of Dominic Raab's announcement this week? Well, in some ways, rather like the ultra low interest rates that we've seen ever since the financial crisis in the last decade, the lockdown is a lot easier to get into than to get out of. And although I think in the short term, the decision this time around was relatively straightforward. If the UK is at the peak of this crisis at the moment, it's only just got to the peak. Therefore, the decision to extend was a sensible one. Instantly, opinion polling shows that the public is by and large supportive of this. It would rather try and crush the virus out of circulation now than have a constant stop starting. Also, I think you have to bear in mind that a lot of people are scared. Although there are patterns to people who die, they're not absolute. And you're seeing young, supposedly healthy people dying. And at the moment, most of them are minded to go along with this, even though for an awful lot of people, there's a great deal of financial hardship. The longer term issue, I think, is that 
the government's set some parameters at last for kind of things it needs to see before it can start to ease the lockdown. The difficulty is that one hasn't yet seen very much evidence of the strategic planning, which makes that a smoother exit, which allows us to think that we won't simply be lurching back into another crisis. And in each of the steps, stages we've seen so far, the government has understood the intentions and, and has known what it wants to do for the last two or three weeks. But there's been a substantial lag in being able to deliver on those things. And I think the worry that many people have is that that's still going to be true in three weeks' time. Because Laura Hughes, there's been this growing drumbeat from MPs, from ministers and from the media as well to kind of say, well, when is this lockdown going to end? Now, the opinion polling shows the British people don't want this to end. It's well over 90% of people are saying they're happy for it to continue. And for the reasons Robert said, people are worried. And they do want it to keep on going. But at the same time, there is this slight feeling of rudderlessness to the government that we're in this lockdown because we have to, to ensure the coronavirus doesn't spread out of control. But on the other hand, there is this feeling this week that the government doesn't really have much of a plan about how to get out of this. And there was a column in the Daily Telegraph that said the problem of this is the fact there's no prime minister, that Boris Johnson is still in recovery, and we'll come on to that later. But it doesn't feel as if anyone's willing or able to step up and explain how we're eventually going to get out of this. I think in part you're correct to say that because we don't have a prime minister taking these huge decisions and running the show, there might be some reluctance or there might be an inability for the government to really come up with a proper plan. Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, she's committed to publishing a proper lockdown exit strategy for the public. And she's talked about not treating members of the public as if they were children. And The reason that it's important isn't so much that people want to start thinking about these things lifting. The reason it's important is because we've seen throughout the last few weeks that there's been an inability to plan ahead. And so if part of your lockdown exit strategy is mass community testing, the government will therefore need to set out what exactly they're doing to make sure that they have the numbers to do that. If part of the lockdown exit strategy is for all Londoners to wear masks on public transport, what is the government doing to secure those masks? It's questions like that that I think are behind this call, particularly from the Labour Party, for some sort of strategy. And I've seen a lot of commentators asking why journalists keep pushing this question because people don't want to leave yet and they don't want to go out into public. But I think that's essential. I mean, yesterday we got something from Dominic Raab when he set out these five conditions that needed to be met before the lockdown measures can be eased. But I mean, listening to them, they're pretty obvious. You know, making sure the NHS is able to cope, that we have this sustained fall in the daily death rate, data showing infection is decreasing. I think for those behind the scenes planning the government's response over the next few months, they're the people that need to know what exactly the government have in mind. And we're just not getting that yet. Well, I think one of the reasons there's scepticism about this is that a lot of British people are looking to the other European countries, some of which had much tougher lockdown measures, started their lockdowns earlier and seem to have a clearer plan about how to exit this. I want to bring in Ben Hall here, our Europe editor, just to take a look at some of those other countries and what they've been doing. Because, Ben, we've had a steady stream of headlines of Germany, Austria, other countries, how they're going to exit. What are we sort of seeing in their strategies and what might it tell us about what the UK will eventually do? Well, I think there are sort of three categories of response, if you like. You've got the small 
countries that were very quick in terms of imposing lockdowns and quite drastic. So countries like Denmark, Austria and the Czech Republic that closed their borders very early on. And they're the ones that have managed to contain the spread of infection better than their bigger neighbours and are now talking or even implementing a loosening up. So Denmark this week, for example, reopened kindergartens and junior schools. Then you've got France and Germany. Both of them this week said that the lockdowns would continue until next month, but then signalled that there would then be some loosening of restrictions. France, the restrictions stay in place until May the 11th, and in Germany until May the 3rd. But next week, Germany will start opening up some shops, for example. And then you've got Spain and Italy, the two hardest hit countries in continental Europe, where the restrictions have been the toughest. In Italy, you're still not allowed out of your house to exercise, for example. And in both of those, they had closed down all non-essential workplaces, which hadn't happened in France, Germany or Britain. Those two countries are still very much in the thick of this crisis and haven't really given much visibility about how they're going to get out of it. So, of course, Robert, the question now is what sort of timetable is the UK going to be looking at relaxing this or at least changing it? So we know the lockdown is going to continue until the first week of May. It could be renewed then. But I think the sense that I get from ministers and from Downing Street is that the, the most optimistic scenario is that the prime minister is back in action by that point, which will provide the government with a clearer sign of leadership. When we get to that point, we will be past the peak of the disease. And we should mention that the government's scientific and medical advisors felt that we are near, if not quite at the peak of the outbreak yet. We've still got tragically hundreds of deaths every single day, but the number does seem to be vaguely stabilising. But when we get to early May, I think people will be expecting Boris Johnson to say that, yes, it's continuing for a bit longer, but here's the timetable for us relaxing along the kind of ways Ben was just talking about for other European countries. So do you think that's likely and how do you think they're going to go about relaxing it? I think by the end of the next three weeks, people are going to want to see some kind of process in place. One thing that's not going to happen, I think I heard someone on the radio, in fact, saying this during the week, they're not going to flick a switch and everyone's going to roll out their doors and life's going to continue as it was before. This is going to be phased. So I think among the things that we would expect to hear from the government is some sense of how the phasing might work which industries will be allowed to reopen, which groups might be allowed to go back, whether schools and colleges, for example, as I think they will, will be among the early groups to go back into society. But I think a hard timetable is trickier because if you say you are guided by the science and say you are guided by the steps that are required by the science, then you can't make this a purely political decision. The one thing that is worth adding, and I think we're hearing more and more about this now, are incidents of people dying, not because they've got the coronavirus, but because they are trying to stay away from hospitals, trying to avoid use of the emergency services. There is a, a hidden death toll that we're not yet picking up. It's worth pointing out that nowhere in Europe is there really a fully thought out strategy of how to exit the lockdown. So far, all of the responses have been incredibly tentative. And Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, warned this week that the country is walking on thin ice as it began to sort of map out or root out of these restrictions. And I think that reflects the reality of the scientific advice that's been given to all European leaders, which is that there is a very grave danger of a second spike in infections and that any loosening of restrictions has a sort of almost mechanical impact in that infections will rise. So what governments need to do is to make sure that their health services and particularly their acute beds are not overwhelmed by that rise. 
and that they have the testing and tracing structures and resources in place. And some countries clearly like Germany are much further ahead than others. Germany is basically a lot further ahead than France, although France is now beginning to catch up on the testing front and has overtaken the UK, for example. The other thing to remember is that, you know, although in Britain, the public has given the government a degree of slack, both over the early errors and in its handling of this crisis, partly because the country wants to believe the government knows what it's doing and partly because it recognises that this is not a crisis of this government's making and it's unprecedented. When you get to the lifting of the lockdown, however, that's a much more complex political issue because that is something in the government's own control. And if it is judged further down the line to have grotesquely messed up the easing of this lockdown, that's a major, major political problem for it. But I just wanted to ask what public opinion has been like in those countries that have announced their exit strategies? I think, again, it, it varies from country to country. But for example, there was some polling, I think, out today on Austria, which shows that support for Sebastian Kurz and his centre-right People's Party are at highs that they haven't seen in that country for decades. So they've appreciated his tough, resolute action. And they also appreciate a rapid exit. But even in Austria, they are only loosening a tiny bit. Now, to bring things back to home for a moment, let's talk about Brexit, something slightly coronavirus related, but a bit different. That Boris Johnson's government has always been insistent that the UK would not extend the transition period beyond the end of this year. That this standstill period where we're sort of members of the EU, but without a say in any of the decisions, don't turn up to council meetings or have MEPs, goes on till the end of December 2020. Now, the UK can extend that by a year or two, but it has to make that decision by June this year. Now, Downing Street has been very insistent that wouldn't happen, that we would be leaving the block fully at the end of December. But of course, coronavirus has disrupted all of that that about a month has been lost from the negotiations. Both Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, and David Frost, Boris Johnson's chief negotiator, have been in self-isolation with coronavirus symptoms. But we heard in a very clear way this week from Downing Street that it will not ask for an extension, but if the EU offers one, it will also reject it too. Laura, I was quite struck that the government's obviously pretty hard line on Brexit matters, but it felt like this was taking a particularly hard stance. It also suggested some of the thinking Downing Street when they said we need to leave the transition period because it's important to have the economic and political flexibility to deal with coronavirus, which people who are very pro-EU will scoff at and Brexiters will say, ah, yes, well, that's the point of the whole thing in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was pretty extraordinary, actually, for them to say that there were no circumstances in which the UK would delay its departure beyond December the 31st, given what is going on. And despite all the disruption that we've already seen to the negotiations that have been caused by the coronavirus crisis, it felt like a real toughening of their stance. Because even if Brussels were to reach out a hand and give us more time... Number 10 were really very insistent this week that wasn't going to happen. And I thought that was interesting because actually you've seen some more hardline Brexiteers, even just on social media, saying that they would accept an extension. But as you said, Number 10 were really saying that if we did stay in the block beyond the end of this year, it would restrict in some way the UK's ability to respond to this crisis. It's interesting as well, given that you have the French president giving an interview with the FT saying that if 
countries don't intervene to help those who have suffered the most. Countries like Italy, you could see the European Union falling apart as a political project. So despite, I think, most people not really thinking about Brexit at the moment, it's still there in the background. And we still have a lot of time to extend the transition period if we so wanted to. But it all goes back to the politics of why we left the EU in the first place. And that's not something a lot of people are thinking about. But clearly, number 10 feels this is a pressure point for them and that they can't give in. Well, but we've been debating a lot this week about how much bluffing is involved in the government strategy because Boris Johnson's downstream does have form on this. We remember last summer when the Prime Minister said he'd rather die in a ditch than not leave the EU on October the 31st. And well, we didn't leave on October the 31st and he didn't die in a ditch either. So there is a question about whether it is just talking tough to try and speak to its base, make it look powerful in the face of the EU. But then when push comes to shove this summer, if there is no progress and the EU offers an extension, it will accept it. What do you reckon? I think bluff is probably not quite the word I'd choose. There's no doubt they really, really don't want to extend this transition period. It has substantial costs involved as well. So they don't want to spend the money. They don't want to look like they've stepped back from their promises. And they legislated to prevent themselves from doing so. So they would have to pass some bill to unpick that piece of legislation. But I think If there is room for wiggle in this, it's this, that what the government doesn't want to do is lose the next two or three months of discussing this, trying to get a deal in shape, because it knows at the moment it says, yes, we are going to have to extend this transition period. The EU will just shut up shop on discussions because it's got more important things to worry about and would almost start again from scratch next year sometime. So I think what they want to do is keep the momentum up. But I do believe certainly from the people I've spoken to in government, even among the hard brexit side of the argument, that there is a recognition that it may absolutely be necessary, but they don't want to give the EU any reason to just stop talking about it now. And Ben, from the Brussels perspective, I think they've always been quite sanguine and said, we're not in a rush. If you want to extend this, then we'll offer you some more time and have more time to talk. And we saw that the head of the IMF said this week that this should extend because there's going to be so much economic and geopolitical uncertainty. We shouldn't add to it by the disruption that could be involved in a no-deal Brexit. Do you think there'll be any moves from Brussels to try and push towards an extension, given this hardline stance from number 10? I think possibly there will be because so many European countries are facing mammoth crises right now. And they, frankly, don't have the political bandwidth to be dealing, certainly later in the year, with the closing stages of a negotiation with Britain. So I think there will be big pressure from the continent on the UK to extend the transition period. I think the other thing that's worth thinking about is that the pain of a no-deal exit from the EU side may be relatively less than it was six months ago. They're all dealing with mammoth economic slumps, mass casualties from this epidemic. The Eurozone is facing an existential threat because of the rising debt burdens in Italy and Spain and other places. They still haven't got their seven-year budget sorted out. They have got many other big problems. So I think they will be desperately urging Brits to extend the transition period. But at the same time, they may be less reluctant to walk away if the Brits play hardball. And then finally, just to look at a couple of matters back home, Laura, your favourite topic of all, which is testing. The government has found itself in more issues on this this week because this was the point at which Boris Johnson announced we'd be up to 25,000 tests a day ahead of that big 100,000 tests a day target by the end of April. We're not there this week. And the government's approach has been very odd because Matt Hancock, when he announced that new testing target, was very straightforward and clear when he said we hadn't quite got this 
this right. We are going to work to try and get the testing up. But then this week seemed to deny that target was even there to begin with. What do you think is going on here? And are we making any progress? It does sort of look as though we're making progress on the surface. So as you mentioned, there was a 25,000 target for mid-April. On Wednesday, we still only had capacity to test 19,000 people, but we're actually only doing 16,000. Then in the last 48 hours, it looks as though we have actually really increased capacity. So Matt Hancock's now saying we can do 30,000. But once again, we're just not reaching that capacity. We only did 18,000 yesterday. And the government are trying to say that this is a matter of demand, not availability. So there is an idea here that health workers aren't going to get the tests, which just sounds a bit strange. Is this not being communicated to them? Is it not being made easy enough for health workers to get these tests? That's not quite clear. On Friday morning, Matt Hancock announced that there was now capacity to expand testing to the police, the fire service, prison staff and those working the judiciary. So they're clearly desperate to get as many tests done as possible. But it all just feels very confused. And as you mentioned, even if we're on 30,000 today, Friday, the government still has a target of reaching 100,000 by the end of the month. So that's another 70,000 tests being carried out every single day. Now, there are a whole series of issues the government have pointed to for why we haven't been able to ramp up on the same scale as countries like Germany. They've blamed shortages globally of reagents. They've also pointed to a lack of lab capacity. But we have these new lighthouse labs, three major networks that have been set up. The last one's about to be made operational. And one of the reasons the government have been saying things have been a bit slow is that in those labs, everything's being done by hand. But eventually we'll have robots effectively doing these tests and you'll have rooms full of machines that can carry them out at huge, huge pace. But the reason it is, again, so important is it's about the long-term lockdown exit strategy, as well as ensuring that NHS workers can do their jobs, can get to work and work in a way that makes them feel safe, but also prevents them from passing this on to really vulnerable patients. And the government are just still not quite reaching their own targets. They're not carrying out the capacity that they have. And warnings from scientists this week that this target that they made, this big number Matt Hancock put out there was more of a political target than one actually grounded in any evidence or based in the capacity that we really ever had to do. So it's something that everyone's going to keep watching as you see NHS workers dying and you see these horrible stories emerging, you you really have to ask why this fundamental question has not yet been addressed weeks into this crisis. And then, Robert, the other area that's been very problematic for the government this week has been care homes that have been devastating stories about the number of deaths occurring within care homes. Again, that sense there's not been enough testing within care homes. And in the middle of this week, Matt Hancock rapidly announced that there would be more testing, that every person who needed it would get it. They also rushed to try and get more PPE equipment there. It feels like they've been a bit on the back foot of this, you know, trying to deal with a desperate situation, but not quite having the equipment or the ability to deliver what needs to be. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think if one is cynical in any area of the government's response, I have to say this is the one where I have a degree of cynicism. I think that 
there was an enormous focus on people going into NHS hospitals, on people getting sick, having seen the scenes in Italy and of seeing hospitals overrun. Against that, there was a sense of, you know, well, look, old people in care homes, people die in these homes every week. It's going to be bad there, but this is not where the major crisis. I think they were just very much seen as a Cinderella part of this service. And it's only as the numbers started to really crank up and the number of deaths and the number of cases that it began to be obvious that they were appalling sort of petri dishes of disease and that once one person got ill the danger of a whole home falling ill was enormous and that these are some of the most vulnerable people the only thing i would mention is there have been real problems in getting protective equipment to all kinds of organizations and i think it has been hardest getting it to some of the care homes nhs hospitals that always have people around who can logistically manage and cope with drops of equipment care homes are more thin on the ground the people so that's a bit trickier but there is no doubt that the government has not been as attentive to this as it could have been until things got really bad and laura in one last quick minute can i just get you to tell us about what's going on with masks because there has been a bit of a debate with the government saying it is reviewing its advice on face masks and initially saying that there was no evidence that they helped stop the disease spreading. And then you've had Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, saying, well, in fact, it's sort of the opposite of that. And we've seen lots of other countries as part of their exit strategy saying that wearing masks in public is absolutely part of that. So have we got another U-turn coming on that front? Potentially, and potentially another example of the sense of British exceptionalism at the beginning of this crisis, as if we didn't need masks while the rest of the world seemed to be wearing them. Grant Shapps, the transport minister, was still sort of saying this morning that the evidence on whether masks work is quite mixed. But that's very different from what was said a few weeks ago, which was, as you mentioned, that there is no evidence that it actually stops people from contracting this virus. But we're seeing masks popping up all around the world and being made in compulsory in places like New York. So these are bits of the Western world that you wouldn't normally see widespread use of face coverings in this way. And the fact that the mayor of London is coming out and calling for the government to change its guidelines, saying that people should be wearing them if they can't keep two metres apart. For example, you might be on public transport or you might be out shopping. Also, it feels as though there's a psychological element to this This issue of supermarkets is a really big one where all of us sticking to these very tight social distancing rules. But when you go into a supermarket, people are getting very close. And I think there might be a huge number that would just actually like to wear one for the psychological protection that it gives you. And also the evidence that there is in some parts of the world that it might stop you from passing it on, even if the evidence doesn't suggest that it stops you from getting it. But it feels like we're still assessing it. We were wrong to dismiss masks at the very beginning. And it might form part of the strategy for how we get back to normal and get back working in places like London, where it is very difficult to stay two metres apart from people. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Laura, Robert and Ben for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which are at ft.com forward slash offer. Plus, plenty of our coronavirus journalism is free to read. If you'd like to take a look at some of that for a flavour of the articles we've been discussing. That's it for me. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder and Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.